Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Shari, the podcast. My name is Serena Tolino. And my name is Gianluca Parolin. In this episode, we are delighted to have as a guest Dörte Engelke from the Max Planck Institute for Comparative and International Private Law. Welcome, Dörte. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Dörte. What do you like to do in your free time? Well, to be honest, since the birth of our first son, the term free time has become a little bit of a funny notion. But I spent most of my maternity leave in, in Jordan. And one morning when I woke up after two hours of sleep and I, well, I had all these elaborate plans. I wanted to do field work while I was on maternity leave. And it would have been such a great opportunity to be in Jordan, you know, to combine maternity leave and field work. And basically, well, it was during COVID. So the whole country, as pretty much everywhere else, was closed down. We had a curfew on Fridays, so at some point I woke up after an almost sleepless night and I thought, okay, this cannot possibly be my life. I need to make a change. So, you know, it was just a few months after the biggest meltdown of the financial market. So I thought the sensible thing would be to open a brokerage account. So I started <laughs> investing in stocks and I have been ever since. And yeah, it's become kind of an, yeah, I guess a hobby in some way. Um, I guess, well, money could be a hobby. And yeah, I've been enjoying it, following different companies. Um, I feel like as researchers, we, I mean, as, at least in my work, we so often think about how the past impacts the present. So in, in my work, I look at how historical developments impact on law in the contemporary period. and. The investing in stocks is kind of an interesting contrast in that way because it makes you think a lot more about the future and how the presence will impact on the future and market developments. But then there are also a lot of similarities. You need to have a very long breath. You need to be in it for the long game, just as much as in academia. So, yeah, so I found interesting contrasts, but also similarities between the stock market and academia. So you probably had a good year last year. I wonder what <laughs> your outlook for 2022 is, but we'll leave it to the side discussions at the conference in London and possibly find other presenters who are maybe cryptocurrency miners. <laughs> uh, who knows? Yeah, I don't have any investments in cryptocurrencies so far, so I would be excited to hear about such experiences. <laughs> Thank you a lot for sharing that with us. In your, uh, for what regards instead your research, you have had a long-term interest in how family law has been reformed, especially in Jordan and Morocco. This is what your uh, book is about. And also the relation with political and social change. And now you mentioned, of course, uh, history, how the past impact these reforms. So would you like to share something about that past research with us? Yes. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to refresh my memory. It, uh, the book only came out in 2019, but it feels a long, long time ago. So in my book, which was based on my doctoral dissertation, I investigate what I at the time found to be an empirical puzzle, the question why such similar regimes as Morocco and Jordan 
had such different takes on family law reform in the 2000s, both in terms of who was in charge of reform, the way the laws were discussed, um, who participated in these debates, the outcome of the laws, but also the application of the laws. So I started with this empirical puzzle, um, why we see different results in seemingly similar regimes. And in the course of that research, I really became interested in how legal systems impact on change and how historical developments that shape the development of legal systems have an impact on contemporary reform. So I show in my research that basically in Morocco, law became a lot more politicized than in Jordan, which meant that after Morocco achieved independence, very high on the agenda was the unification of the legal system. So you had a lot of French judges serving on Moroccan benches. It was framed as a project of Arabization, nationalization, the judiciary, and very much as a nationalist project and also bringing the Berbers, in inverted commas, the Amazigh population back under state control, even though, of course, the Amazigh population had long been applying customary law. But it was this nationalist narrative that they had to come back under Islamic law and that this division had been imposed by the French. And that then leads to the unification of the judiciary. And in the future, family law was applied by a unified court system rather than by Sharia courts or, I mean, we still have a Jewish court in Morocco, but for the Muslim population. And the story, of course, is very different in Jordan, where law had not been politicized to the same degree and the Sharia courts continued to function and very much become very refined, reformed actors. And we actually have seen in the contemporary period similar developments we've seen at the regular courts taking place in the uh, in the Sharia courts, they have an institute where they train judges. So the processes have all become very similar to the regular courts. And given these developments, the Sharia courts developed a lot more autonomy and they were able to shape the process of family law reform in Jordan. They became, well, because they are in charge of applying the Islamic family law and they are in charge of supervising the Sharia courts, the Sharia court administration. They were seen as the experts of family law, and that gave them a lot of autonomy to speak on the matter, to guide the process, and ultimately to also impose their vision of what Islamic family law was meant to be. And then because they supervised the Sharia courts, they were also able to control the implementation of the law, whereas in Morocco, we have seen a lot more cooperation with international actors like UN women and so forth. So. Yes, so I've been very much interested in how these historical reform processes shape how debates are conducted in the present and what that means for the application of laws. After following how legal reform affected the area of the family for the majority Muslim population, you started looking at how those same dynamics of reforms of family law affected minority population, in particular, the Greek Orthodox community in Jordan. What is this contrast telling you about legal reform? Yeah, that's a very good question. That's typically Jean-Luc. So I think we commonly have associated legal reform with the state, at least, of course, in the contemporary period. And when it comes to 
minority laws such as the personal status laws applied by Christian communities. I'm still in two minds whether I should call them Christian laws. For the moment, I normally refer to the personal status laws of Christian communities. I'm not sure that there is Christian law, but as I said, I'm a little bit unsure about this at the time. But that model of state-led reform does not work for minority law. And what I found with respect to the Greek Orthodox, so I look at the application of the Greek, the Byzantine family law, the law the Greek Orthodox apply in the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem, which comprises Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. So the idea of territory, sovereignty, and jurisdiction mapping onto each other is just not the case with respect to minority law, and that creates all kinds of different dynamics. It's interesting, of course, we have this outsider view of, of course, perceiving law as being the law of the state, but actors within these countries, they, of course, also operate within the state model. So they find it equally difficult to operate in that system because it complicates questions of advocacy, for example. So women's groups who advocate for the reform of the Byzantine Family Code would have to coordinate with people in different countries. So women's groups in Jordan, for example, would have to well, ideally be able to travel to Jerusalem to hold meetings with the patriarch who's based in Jerusalem and who is the only one who has the legal authority to issue a new law that would then be applied in all of the countries that belong to the patriarchate. And that, for political reasons, is, of course, often not even possible. So it creates all kinds of dynamics that we commonly do not associate with state-led reform. And I think that is the most intriguing part about it. So this also brings us closer to what you will be presenting in London. Would you like to share something with us already? Something about what you plan maybe and the challenges you're facing? (laughs) Yes, thank you, Serena. Um, Yes, so I will be presenting a new project that is also part of this larger book project on, on the minority laws of Christian communities. And that is a project that is based on a quantitative survey that will be conducted in collaboration with the Center for Strategic Studies at the University of Jordan. It is a a quantitative survey that investigates attitudes towards inheritance and inheritance practices of Christian and Muslim Jordanians. And it's a challenging project for me because, well, I've been trying to teach an old dog new tricks, me being the old dog. So I've never conducted a quantitative survey But more recently, I've been thinking about new projects. I've been thinking more closely about new methodologies I want to employ rather than just thinking about content. And because I very much believe that the methodologies we know very much shape the questions we can ask. So this is new territory for me in many, many ways. And the theoretical underpinning of this survey is basically to investigate whether the premises that Islamic inheritance law is based on do hold up in practice. So every law, of course, is infused with assumptions about norms, about values, about certain social relationships. And few times we actually have the chance to evaluate whether these claims hold up in practice. So, of course, as you know, Islamic inheritance law in general upholds the concept of two shares for men and one share for women of the same degree. 
And this division of shares is normally justified with men's financial obligations towards women and children, but also parents. So the assumption is that men carry all these financial burdens. Women can own property, but they, they can work outside the home, but they have no obligation to contribute to the income of the household or to bringing up their children, at least not financially. Um, so the idea is that a woman's income is her income. She doesn't have to contribute it to her family. So I want to see whether this holds up in practice, whether women actually, I mean, we always talk about unequal inheritance, but what does that actually mean in, in practice? What gets inherited? What do women give up? So we have research on Muslim women, for example, conducted by Annalise Morse, who has found that many women in Palestine renounce their inheritance share in favor of a male member of the family. And this might, in some cases, also be very much in, in the interest of the women because they get solidarity in return. Interviews I've conducted with women, Christian women in Jordan, have confirmed that Christian women also often give up their inheritance shares in favor of male members of the family, especially if the inheritance consists of land. So the project also aims to compare practices of Muslim and Christian Jordanians and to kind of, well, to put these two legal systems. But of course, in the case of Jordan, both communities apply the Islamic inheritance law. There's been talk about issuing a Christian inheritance law. But to kind of understand how those two communities are affected by the current inheritance system, where they differ, where they are in agreement, how socioeconomic factors shape attitudes towards inheritance, whether women might be actually how many women give up their inheritance share. And also, I mean, we assume that they will be unhappy about renouncing their inheritance share. But I think this has to be asked as an open question. So are women actually content with renouncing their inheritance share? And if so, what do they get in return? So it aims to substantiate some of the assumptions we have about inheritance and about inheritance practices and to kind of substantiate these claims based on, um, on interviews conducted with 1,400 people in Jordan. But as you've already mentioned, there have been challenges <laughs> to this project. So originally, I already wanted to present the results of this survey, but for reasons of COVID and now there's Ramadan, <laughs> we will not be able to begin conducting the interviews. So the Center for Strategic Studies before the end of Ramadan. And then normally it takes about three, four weeks for the data collectors to go around Jordan. So they will visit seven provinces and conduct 1,400 interviews. So it's a very challenging and um, takes a lot of time. So I will not be able to present, unfortunately, <laughs> the results of the survey, but I hope I will be able to share the methodology, the approach, the theoretical underpinning with you during the conference. By the lady, inshallah, just like the conference then. Thank you so much, Dirte, for being with us. And we look forward to hearing the full paper in London. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.